The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning. Welcome to Squawkbox. China's factory activity jumps in March, expanding at the fastest pace in three months as global demand recovers. Uh, the U.S. 10-year yield hitting a 14-month high, driving the Dow away from record levels as the Archegos fallout keeps investors on edge. With JP Morgan saying the banking sector could be facing a $10 billion hit. U.S. President Joe Biden prepares to roll out his massive infrastructure bill, but faces resistance over its multi-trillion dollar price tag. Amid expectations, he could raise corporate taxes to pay for the plan. Germany making another U-turn on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, now saying it should only be used on people over the age of 60 amid concerns over possible side effects. Tonight, we're not faced with the question of AstraZeneca or nothing. But we must also know that the whole vaccination process is based on one principle, and that's trust. We must be able to trust the vaccines. Plus, Deliveroo makes its debut. The food delivery giant begins conditional trading in London's biggest IPO in a decade after pricing at the bottom of its range and facing some resistance from the big institutional investors. <laughs> Nearly caught me there. I was just uh, having a conversation with the director about where do you want me? Do you want me over this side with the markets lower at this point? Or do you want me over this side? Look, I always wanted to do game shows uh, by the uh, manufacturing PMI data here. Uh, like Bruce Forsyth. He's dead, isn't he? Was it the, uh, the oh. Price is Right? I don't know. No, he didn't do that. Did that? Higher, like, oh, higher, what? lower, lower. Yeah, that one. That what was that game called? Uh, it was the one with the cards, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. You no had idea. To, uh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> I'll find out. Yeah, never mind. Mo- moving. Uh, so they're all pretty much the same, aren't they, at the end of the day, let's face it. Play uh, your cards right, apparently. Play your cards right. Very, very well done, Rod. Uh, he's a little bit older than us, of course, so he can remember oh, it. Quite a lot older, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about the China data then, because it was a question of higher, higher, lower, lower when it comes to the China data. And I don't want to be churlish about these numbers. Let me let me just read through this. But I think there are some very interesting messages in here. And maybe it's not the knockout number that the markets might have hoped for. But let, let me read the read. Chinese services and manufacturing activity jumped in March with the country's factories reporting the strongest showing of the year. The latest official PMI data, uh, which was skewed towards large and state-owned firms, easily beat forecasts. So the non-manufacturing PMI, which gave us a good insight into the services in China, 56.3. Healthy leap over that 50 number, which represents expansion. Manufacturing PMI, 51.9. And again, you can argue that that is a decent showing for an economy that has shown resilience coming out of the pandemic crisis. And it's a reflection not only of an uplift in domestic demand for finished products, but it also reflects export demand for the manufacturing sector as well. But is 51.9 good enough? Is there vulnerability in this number 
when it comes to the opening up of other economies. And I suspect in part that may be one of the reasons uh, why these Asian numbers, these uh, Chinese stock market numbers are not quite as strong as you might have hoped here. The other one is probably inevitably around uh, what's going on in the United States and the yield curve. But the Shanghai Composite is off uh, six-tenths of one percent, as you can see. Shenzhen matching those losses and the CSI 300 index down over one percent. And of course, there are also these concerns about limits on technology transfer to Chinese companies now that want to continue to get access to U.S. tech in chips. So, Sam, let's let's just pick up on this because I think these numbers are fascinating and they tell us a lot about the recovery on the services side and in the construction sector. But do we need to be worried that maybe the export numbers are not quite as strong as China might have hoped at this point, in part because uh, Europe is having problems getting on top of this pandemic? Good morning to you, Jeff. I mean, you make a very good point there. I think linking what we saw today in this data to the markets, what we have here is a bit of a classic case of what is good news for the economy, maybe not so much for the Chinese markets, because what we've been seeing is these real lingering concerns. Uh, these are persistent worries about potential policy tightening. And that has really been weighing on sentiment over on the mainland markets at the moment. And so analysts have certainly suggested that the uh, more positive and very strong data that we get out of the mainland, the more perhaps we're going to see these investor concerns uh, as we see this recovery about potential normalisation moving away from accommodation. So while we have uh, seen this very strong data, there is still uh, market pressure. Uh, but uh, this does come as businesses really got back to usual after the Lunar New Year holiday period when we tend to see things slow down. And so this growth uh, was partly, as you pointed out there, uh, down to overseas demand, which we know has been improving, particularly on these vaccine rollouts and uh, the global recovery picture. If you look Look at the breakdown, it's quite telling. Those export numbers were actually up around 51.2% in March, actually after contracting in February. So I think that really underpins uh, that external demand. So Chinese factories really appeared to sort of crank up production following the spring festival to meet some of this uh, overseas demand. When you look at what happened at home, uh, those new orders generally were actually at the uh, highest since December. So we are looking at both the uh, domestic and overseas demand at driving this. The other factor is perhaps this stay put factor, because, of course, a lot of these migrant workers didn't head home uh, for the holidays and that uh, allowed these factories to stay open. And that's why we perhaps saw a resumption happening a lot quicker in terms of factory activity than we usually see. Guys, back to you in London. Very much indeed for that, Samantha. Right, let us move. I presume it's Samantha rather than just Sam. Actually, I should check. Um, right, OK, we do have a downtick in the markets, but I think these markets yesterday behaved beautifully. I think they behaved very well because this yield story that we were talking about in the headlines, 177, uh, and the widest spread you may be interested to know in the 2 to 10 year at 161.8 basis points at one point. That is the highest level since the 22nd of July 2015. And I think it's very interesting that the markets, 
they, they, they gave up some of their gains. They weren't spectacular to the upside, apart from one index. I'll come to that in a moment. Um, but they were beautifully behaved. And, and don't forget, we are now in that end of month, end of quarter-ish. I don't even know how much window dressing goes on end of quarter anymore as well. I think a lot less than perhaps channels like CNBC give it credit for as well. Maybe the half year, certainly the full year window dressing. But I don't know how much goes on on a quarterly basis now. Uh, but that, of course, could come into focus. And we'll go over the quarterly numbers for the markets, which, again, behave rather nicely for if you long in markets uh, over the last quarter. I will say month to date, though, the Nasdaq has been an underperformer down 1.1%, whereas the Dow on the month has outperformed the Nasdaq by 8%. Big number, isn't it? It was up 6.9%. I'll show you another index that's done rather well as well. And this is the Dow Transports. And the reason why I'm showing you this is, is partly because of what Jeff said yesterday uh, about the Russell 2K having a bit of a wobble. Uh, and just because I, I talked about the journey that the R2K had gone on yesterday, didn't I? Well, the journey that the transports has gone on, this is why I wanted to show you this one, it's quite extraordinary. 127% uh, above uh, its 52-week uh, low, uh, which is oh, no, the, the low of last year, which is roughly 52 weeks now, as you know. So it's quite extraordinary. And again, year to date, it's put on 18%. And again, there are people out there, and, and Jeff's more the student of market history than I am, who will look at the transports and say, this is a really bullish sign for the economy. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll take a step back, metaphorically and physically, uh, and say, isn't that interesting? You've got the Treasury yield expanding. You've got the spread expanding. You've got the transports giving you a very bullish signal as well. And yet the Fed is keeping the mantra that there is nothing to see on the inflation front. Just keep thinking about that story. Again, I'm not telling you there is inflation. I'm just telling you that there are a lot of positive stimuli being told, uh, talked about in the market which have to be based on economics at some stage, don't they? Let's have a look at technology stocks as well, because, of course, a lot of volatility, uh, Archegos-inspired volatility, I guess, in some Chinese names. It hasn't come through into the market. Very well-behaved session, actually. Tesla was up 4%. Really flattish moves. I mean, the kind of moves you really rarely see in this sector as well. We saw Microsoft and Apple both giving up around about one2 to 1.4%. Now, the treasuries, I mentioned this, so I should now uh, give you a little bit more colour on this one as well. So... 177 was the high, got down to 172 at one point at the close yesterday, now trading 173.55. So I think there's a very interesting, where is the point where the markets have one of their little wobbles on high yields? It would have at one point been 177. It certainly wasn't yesterday. Again, markets did come off, but nowhere near. Now, dollar crosses. Shall I show you this? Uh, uh, dollar index. Again, I was asking uh, Yogi Duan yesterday from Hassium about is his positive emerging market call in jeopardy if the dollar can continues to rally. <clears throat> he thinks potentially not, but the dollar in the month is up 2.7%. Uh, and actually, uh, best month since November 2016. Again, another one of those little signals, isn't it, in the market that the dollar is back, uh, treasury yields picking up somewhat as well, transports rallying, just little signals I want you all to have a little look at as well. Uh, cable, here you go, sterling dollar 137, the euro dollar 117, and the dollar yuan 6.5. Actually, I should mention the versus the Japanese currency. There you go. 110.84. So JP Morgan has estimated that lenders with exposure to Archegos could lose as much as 10 billion 
Credit Suisse and Nomura are expected to bear a large portion of the damage, with the two companies reportedly facing combined losses of up to $6 billion. Meanwhile, the Financial Times reports US and European regulators have contacted the banks linked to the fund to investigate their handling of the fire sale. Very interesting Financial Times coverage on this one as well. And I was fascinated, to be honest, the CNBC coverage is excellent on this as well. But I've been reading voraciously on as much as I can. And it seems that there was a meeting before the fire sale started at which many of the parties, the investment banks who have prime brokerage, which are exposed to Archegos, sat down and had a chat. Now, what kind of concert activity happened, I don't know. But I do know that, uh, according to some of the copy, one of the big US investment banks refused to work with the others. Maybe that was a legal issue. Again, I don't know. Uh, and in, in a sale. And actually, according to the copy, went forth uh, and sold their shares aggressively in some block trades as well, which may have left other parties holding some of these uh, positions uh, looking at larger losses. Again, it's, it, it's very opaque at the moment as well, but fascinating reading the reports on this one as well. I should get a bit closer. Have a look. Uh, Credit Suisse and Nomura could not catch a break yesterday, I have to say. Uh, Nomura and Credit Suisse both, I believe, trading significantly over 15% lower over the two to three day period of this. Uh, Goldman Sachs, you'll know, Morgan Stanley, other names mentioned amidst this mire, actually doing rather well yesterday, putting on between 1.5 and 1.9. But I said this yesterday. Do you remember I said to you, I wonder how much of it is about Archegos and how much of it is about that yield expansion. I think the latter is a very important factor for the financials. MUFG shares are trading lower after the company warned of a potential loss of $300 million at its US unit stemming from an unnamed US client. In a statement, Japan's biggest bank said it remains financially sound and is taking steps to manage risk. Uh, President Biden will lay out his plans to overhaul U.S. infrastructure today. Officials say his bill is the first part of a three to four trillion dollar spending plan for the next 10 years, focused on fixing the country's aging roads and transport systems. A second plan will be rolled out in April involving investments in health and child care. So uh, the message to the markets continues to be that there'll be further fiscal support for the economy here. Again, the challenge, I think, as we as we look at these uh, modest pullbacks, we get these reversions around events like Archegos, the path of least resistance still seems to be to buy the dips. And, and what's been interesting, I think, is as we look at this Archegos story and the continued reverberations, did you see Elizabeth Warren? Senator Elizabeth Warren came out and she was fire-breathing on the whole issue. She uh, uh, told CNBC in a statement, largely unregulated hedge fund, opaque derivatives, trading in private dark pools, high leverage, and a trader who wriggled out of the SEC's enforcement. All of those things may be the case. What can one argue with about that? And again, Absolutely. I don't care if you're on the left of the party like Elizabeth Warren or yep. you're more conservative. I'm sorry, I know I've interrupted you in full flow, but what is there to <laughs> argue about what Elizabeth Warren said there? Nothing at all. But no one cares. You get that impression, at least, when you look at the market's performance. And the irony of ironies is that even those uh, Chinese tech stocks that have been beaten up as part of the liquidation of the portfolio to meet those margin calls from the banks, even those Chinese tech companies have now stepped forward, a number of them, and said, hmm, we're going to buy back our own shares. 
at these prices because there's an opportunity and probably for other reasons about where they feel they need to set the price of their shares for their own uh, borrowing requirements. But it is interesting that they've announced effectively a one and a half billion share buyback program, a number of these Chinese companies, to support their stocks. And, And this is the challenge for anybody who wants to trade to the downside on these news stories the share buybacks continue to run at an immense monthly rate. The retail punter is going to get a, a check through the letterbox if they haven't had that already. And here's Mr. Biden today going to tell us how many trillions they think they can extract from the machinery of uh, the financial uh, economy in the United States to prop up the real economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we have to go, um, um, dare I say, I think we have to go back a stage. And, and it's the stage that we talked about pretty much every day since February or March last year. And that is, can we progress while COVID is still so violently affecting the global economy. And of course, everyone's looking for the exit route in the United States now, hence what I think we just said about transports, about yield spreads, about the absolute yield uh, uh, of the 10-year as well, hitting uh, levels we haven't seen for quite a while as well. So I think people are expecting an escape velocity out of the United States and what that means for inflation, which is another strenuous debate we're having. And yet I don't see this recovery here in Europe, for instance, as well. So is the absolute huge largesse fiscally and monetary going to continue in Europe? Yes, because we are nowhere near getting to the kind of levels the US is getting at the moment in vaccinations uh, and indeed economic recovery. Uh, and so does that mean the market goes up here because of the, 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 the support mechanism? And then you have the same question in the United States where you think, well, at some stage, some of that support mechanism must be pulled back if indeed we get to, as the uh, Treasury Secretary said, potentially full employment next year. And again, you know, I have real problems with getting to full employment, but not having an interest rate response for another year after that. I find that very difficult to comprehend that there wouldn't be some form of inflationary impact from full employment. And there's some very good copy around now about some of the real grassroots wholesale price increases and indeed employment cost increases that some of the big US industrial firms are facing at the moment as well, which is a good sign in terms of if you want to see uh, economic recovery, people Mm. are feeling more confident in their employment to ask for pay rises. So I think you've got this whole thing is, have we beaten COVID is basically my basic question before we work out our valuations fruity, what do markets do if there's a recovery or if there's no recovery? And I don't know if we have beaten COVID. When we had, sorry, the final point, that lady from the CDC who we Mm. Uh, had the bite from yesterday. What, what was her comment again? She was terrified or something. Mm. She was scared. That was it. Yeah. Mm. So, oh, direct remember that bit. Um, doomed. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I find that quite extraordinary. A, coming from a, 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 <coughs> an official who you want to see very mm. calm and measured. Mm. And secondly, considering the vaccination program going so well in the United States, and it really is, and you know, Joe Biden's been talking about it, mm. for her to be so worried. Just briefly on that employment point. Um, I think that's a terrific area for us to continue to focus on. But what was the last count? 18 million still taking uh, benefits ultimately in in the States. I mean, it's a a reflection of quite a high level of slack still in the economy, it seems to me, before we need to see a yield curve response. But isn't there always a a question? I mean, we spend a lot of time looking at U3, but I prefer Mm. one of the wider measures, the U6 or the U8, just to look Mm. at how many people who are underemployed in the United States. I always Mm. have done. I've always gone onto that. Bureau of Labor Statistics website, just to point out how many people, and also the participation rate. You know, yeah. when you're in the low 60s as well, that does raise some very large questions about how much slack there is in the system. 
But it will be the focus. Uh, as we know, Janet Yellen is nothing if not a student of labour economics, mm-hmm. which is why I think the market needs to pay a lot of close attention to this because both Jay Powell and, and Janet Yellen have said that this is going to be core to the way they think about stimulus for the economy at the moment. Sure. Uh, still to come on the programme then, despite pricing at the bottom end of its range, today's Deliveroo IPO is still set to be the biggest listing on the London Stock Exchange in a decade. We will talk some more about that when we come back. Stay with us. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Shares in Deliveroo will start trading today in what's set to be London's largest listing in a decade. This despite the food delivery group pricing its offering at the bottom of its initial range at 390 pence per share. Deliveroo's IPO has come under scrutiny from several asset managers who've cited concerns around regulations, pay and its dual class uh, uh, equity structure. Um, Anthony uh, Bartolacci is uh, Vice President of Sales at Sensor Tower. Anthony, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here. Um, just Let's just start with something very basic, um, the business model. How good is this business model and how confident that it will uh, spin off uh, capital and cash uh, for years to come? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here to talk about Deliveroo. So in terms of the business model, I think we're seeing a lot of tailwinds for the food delivery category in general, both in the UK and in the US as well. I think 2020, uh, the pandemic forcing a lot of people to be home and have basic needs met through delivery was really a boon to, to services like Deliveroo. In fact, what we saw with Deliveroo is that Active users in the first quarter of 2021 were up about 70% year over year in the UK, which is about 50% of total company revenue. And that's in line with some of the growth we're seeing for some of the other food delivery apps in the country. I think I've always had a question about how technologically innovative many of these businesses are. To, To me, they seem like ad tech companies that have just bolted on a little bit of uh, a smarter uh, phone service effectively to what is still a very traditional uh, delivery model using uh, motorcycles, bicycles and cars. Once we come through the other side of the, the pandemic and this higher demand scenario, is there the possibility that there's something of a cliff edge for these businesses that they'll have to overcome? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's something that's on everyone's minds right now. What is the new normal as we emerge from this COVID period? Per Sensor Tower data, the food delivery category is actually doing quite strong, and it's still continuing to grow. And that's the case even as different parts of the world have had their own sort of um, rebirth from COVID. And I think when we look to the states, you know, even you know, as parts of, of the United States were exiting lockdown at different parts in 2020, we were still seeing good growth in the category. And then when we look to the UK, 
uh, we still see consistent growth. So while I think there are some categories of applications and services that are probably not going to be as strong as people regain their regular lives, things like teleconferencing and virtual communications and educations, I think they will kind of see a dip as people go back to face-to-face interactions. I, I think our data is suggesting that people are used to having food delivered to their door. Um, and you know, if you look at something like Deliveroo, we're actually seeing it exit the first quarter stronger than where it entered. Um, March active users are up about 10% from where they were in February. And what's really cool, we have a new product uh, called Consumer Intelligence that looks at session data. And the number of sessions per week by a Deliveroo user are up about 20% from even where, where they were last summer, suggesting that they might be making more purchases weekly. So we actually see some acceleration there. Do you agree with the fact that there are very big questions about how their employees are, or the, the riders, the ladies and gentlemen who deliver the food, uh, are, are paid? Because Deliveroo itself in its IPO document thinks they're paid uh, around about £13 an hour. My understanding is that is a peak level and there is a huge contest uh, or contestation of that number. In fact, they could earn as little as £2 an hour, according uh, to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I've obviously sort of stayed up with the news and I know that there have been issues in the UK regarding um, the, the pay of gig economy employees. It's something we've seen in California as well. It, it's kind of outside the scope of Center Tower. We have expertise in the mobile app. So, so we see continued growth for the service itself. I think the questions as to the ethics surrounding their pay scale are probably left to, to other people. Um, but in terms of their business, I think that's where we are seeing meaningful growth. Sorry, Anthony, I, I find that very strange that the ethics and the business model are separate in, a, in these days of ESG. I thought ethics and the business model would have been tied together, sir, for everybody, including yourself. Well, I mean, I, I think you're probably right that the way consumers approach products now, um, you know, the ethics and morals of the companies that they're dealing with absolutely a part of it. But as it pertains to Sensor Tower, where our expertise is, is really in the data and observing how users are downloading, spending time, um, allocating money to different goods and services. And that's where we're seeing a real uptick for not only Deliveroo, but other food delivery apps. So where, where the ethics of their pay scale come into play, that's just kind of outside our scope of visibility. But, but you're right, it's absolutely a question. And I think where we would see that at Sensor Tower is if ridership and uh, sort of users of the app um, fall off and, and maybe they go to other services that they deem to be more ethics in terms of more ethical in terms of how they pay their employees. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.